Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. My guest today is Tracy Spicer. Tracy is a multiple Walkley Award winning author, journalist and broadcaster. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today on Tech Mirror. Thank you for having me on and I love the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Well, we're here today to talk about the book that you've written uh, that has just launched called Man Made, How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future. So really topical issue to be diving into. And I, I thought we'd start at the beginning. What made you write this book? Oh gosh, it was about seven years ago and my son was 11 years old. He came up to me while I was making breakfast. He said, mum, I want a robot slave. <laughs> I said, what on earth are you talking about, darling? And it turned out he'd been watching South Park because we are terrible parents. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Cartman was ordering around his Amazon Alexa and really treating her as servile to do all the jobs that he didn't want to do, outsourcing all the work, abusing her. And I had a light bulb moment as a feminist that, oh my goodness, this whole idea of women and girls being there to service the stereotype of the 1950s is being built into the machines that will run our futures. So from that moment on, it started a seven-year journey of, of researching and interviewing that resulted in the book Man Made. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I, there's so many questions in there. So seven-year process, at the end of this process, did you come out feeling optimistic or pessimistic for the future? At the end of the book, I wrote a chapter called Dystopia and mm. I wrote a chapter called Utopia mm. because I wanted to explore both ways this could go. When I started writing the book, I was quite pessimistic because I thought, how can we change this? The tech industry is enormous. It's a Goliath. We're going through the fourth industrial revolution. How can we possibly fix this? But then when I started researching the Utopia chapter, I, I am a glass half full kind of gal. Mm. And I think there are things we can do if we start doing them now. And the end of the book is full of a whole bunch of solutions, but we must start now because as a society, we have the power and we have the choice to create our future. And I'd much prefer a future full of equity and fairness rather than an increasing gap between rich and poor and a disparity between, you know, women and people in marginalised communities and a small group of billionaires who are creating a future that works very well for them and not many other people. Mm. And that, that concept of creating our future is something that we really focus on a lot at the Tech Policy Design Centre. And we have this tagline that, you know, technology shapes your world but humans shape technology. And one of the motivations of this podcast is to encourage our listeners to get more involved in the conversations about how humans are shaping technology. And I think your book is, is such an accessible read in terms of the impact that technology is having on society now, but also, as you say, it has the sort of actions that we can all be taking um, to be helping to shape the future. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the ways that you identify technology shaping our future, maybe a positive example and a negative example? 
A really good positive example that I like to use is in medical technology, because there is now an app that can tell you whether you are likely to get breast cancer in the next five years. And it was created by a woman at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, because she had breast cancer and she thought, here we are with all of this incredible artificial intelligence research, these wonderful algorithms, this knowledge, and we should be using it more for good rather than evil. Mm. So I completely love that story. That's one of my favorites. And in medical technology, there's a lot of good stuff around age tech, you know, helping us to age better. Mm. You can even think about things like smartwatches. When I had long COVID last year, my smartwatch kept me alive because it told me how much oxygen was in my blood, Mm. what my heart rate was doing, what my blood pressure was when I was a complete mess and probably should have been in hospital. So for hospital in the home, it's immensely helpful. And that is shaping our world because as we have an aging population, we're going to need more of those kind of interventions. Where it's shaping our lives for the worse, I'll answer that by using one anecdote that completely made me fall off my chair. All of these automated soap dispensers were distributed throughout Marriott hotels around the world. A Nigerian tech worker went into the Marriott in London and tried to use it, and it simply didn't work because Mm. it only worked for white hands because the people creating it were a small group of blokes in Silicon Valley who'd only tested it on themselves and their friends. They were a very homogenised group. That same technology is being embedded into self-driving cars. So when you think about that, the cars might not be able to identify a person of colour walking across a pedestrian crossing, whereas they'll identify a white person. So that's a really good example of how just one very small thing, the fact that this innovation wasn't tested on a wider and more diverse group and now it's being embedded into other types of technology Mm. can actually end up being a matter of life and death. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that bias when we think about it It's not just the bias of the people creating the technology. It's also the bias of the people funding the technology, the bias of the data that's used, and also the way that the the results are being interpreted as well. What is it that made you focus this book? You know, this, the feminist perspective comes out really strong uh, throughout the book. And, and I have to say, it's it's quite um, cutting in some places the way, you know, I was laughing out loud because of just the way you <laughs> describe the tech bros and various things. What was it that made you decide to focus this book on that intersectional bias? To answer your question, I'm going to go through a few of the things that you brought up because to me it's almost like a game of dominoes or a cascading effect. Because women and people in marginalised communities uh, all around the world use computers and mobile phones less Mm. than men generally, there's not enough of our data that goes in from the get-go. Mm. The data sets, because they are from the past, have got historical past built into them. Mm-hmm. Almost almost every doctor is he and almost every nurse is she. Then you've got the bias of the programmer and, like you said, the bias of the people running the technology companies. And then you've got machine learning that exacerbates and exaggerates all of this bias. So when I saw the cascading effect, it reminded me of how even though we're building machines for the future, we're making them look a lot like the 1950s. Mm, yeah. There's a really good example that I found the other day. There's a new version of ChatGPT called AutoGPT, where 
the AI is the boss, AutoGPT, and that boss creates his own staff, little mini-me's that are called AI assistants. And of course, the boss is like Don Draper in the series Mad Men, and all of the assistants have female voices. Mm. So they're replicating a very hierarchical structure of the workplace from the past, which we know embeds and deepens sexism and misogyny in society. I know you also founded the organization Women in Media. And so, you know, this is, I guess, a real theme throughout your career. Did you expect that to be a career theme for you? Oh, yes and no. I had the great privilege of being um, the first national convener of Women in Media and working with a wonderful group to build it up from the get-go because I had a very strong belief that the media both reflects but also shapes society Mm -hmm. in the same way that technology both reflects and shapes society. Mm. When I started as a journalist, I wouldn't have called myself a feminist. I had a very strong mother and a very sensitive father, so I had really good non-stereotypical role models growing up. But when I did go into a media workplace, it was quite a shock Mm. because there was a lot of sexual assault and abuse. There was bullying. There were very few women in power, even very few women with high profile positions on air at that point in time. Mm. So my experiences that I absorbed from working in newsrooms, I think made me a feminist, to be honest, Mm. because I thought you can either sit here and accept these structures or you have an obligation to do something to change them, not only for yourself, but for your colleagues and the next generations who are coming through because the thought of young women going through what I went through all those years ago was absolutely horrifying. Mm, Yeah. Look, I I really relate to what you're saying there about I didn't originally associate with being a feminist. I remember when I first moved to Canberra, which was more years than I'll I'll disclose, um, (laughs) but first moved to Canberra and and I was a graduate at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and we were having all of these discussions, you know, as you're you're furiously meeting this cohort of people that you're going to you know, at the time you think you're going to spend the rest of your life working with. And uh, the the issue of feminism came up and, and I said, well, I don't really consider myself to be a feminist. And it sort of provoked this discussion with, with someone who is now a very, very dear friend of mine. Um, and then we went the next day to this APS-wide, uh, so Australian Public Service-wide graduate welcome event where there was uh, three, you know, senior public service people sitting on stage. Uh, two of them were women and one of them was a man. And they, the presenter asked both women about how they dealt with work-life balance and how, but they, she didn't ask the, uh, the male senior uh, public oh, no. servant. And this is like a room full of, I don't know, there must have been a thousand people. And at the end they get to Q&A and I, I was incredibly nervous. You know, I was very, very uh, junior and new to all this. And I stood up and asked a question. I said, why didn't you ask, uh, I can't remember what his name was, the guy, the same question and sat down and, and Lucy, my friend afterwards came up to me and she's like, you are a feminist, whether you know it or not, you asked that question. <laughs> and it was a real moment for me of, of, uh, appreciating, um, you know, I, as you, as you say, I have, I have a very strong mother and a very strong grandmother, but it wasn't something that I had, um, you know, I guess put a label on and now I'm proudly a feminist. So anyway, we, di- we digress from your book, but it, but it definitely uh, resonates with me. 
So when you're writing this book, and, and it is, it, you know, I imagine it was a real journey for you, what was the most interesting or influential, perhaps surprising thing that you learnt about the history of technology? You, you tell that story really beautifully. First of all, I love that anecdote that you just told because we, we always say, you know, it's almost a throwaway comment, uh, conversations are what change change hearts mm-hmm. and minds, you know, storytelling. Yeah. And you telling that story was really powerful because, you know, you learned something from that. Uh, you're teaching me and teaching everyone who's listening that they could have one conversation, they could say something and they realise something about themselves that yeah. they're a feminist. And whether you label yourself that or not, just having the thought, why didn't you ask the man that? Mm. Oh, it's so incredibly powerful to always ask the question. And now because I've diverted to comment on your wonderful story because of my long COVID, I've forgotten the question you asked me. (laughs) No, that's okay. So I was asking about um, the most interesting or surprising thing that you learnt during this seven-year process of writing the book. One of the great joys of writing the book was doing the research and interviewing people around the world. And one of the Mm. early epiphanies was the number of women who were in the computing and technology sector in the 1950s. Because post-war, a lot of women had to, well, during the war, a lot of women had to come into the workforce, of course, because many of the men were away fighting. But women did everything in computing at that time. They were an enormous workforce. And I always had this idea that technology was always male-dominated, but it's not true. Mm. Ada Lovelace, the daughter of Lord Byron, was the world's first computer programmer. Grace Hopper, uh, mid-last century, created COBOL, a really easy-to-understand computing language. You know, uh, I learned about Dr. Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman in space, who was inspired to do that because she saw the actress Nichelle Nichols in Star Trek, which just goes to show you can't be what you can't see. And even further back, the fact that there's a lot of scholarship now around Australia's Indigenous peoples being the world's first scientists. Mm. And when you add that to information about weaving being a Mm. rudimentary and primary form of coding because it's binary with the warp and weft, you think about Australia's Indigenous women being the world's first scientist. So there's a whole bunch of information there about how women have been there. Uh, women are the foundational stones, really, of computing and technology. And when money started coming into the sector, more, I suppose, post the 1950s, but really in a rush around the 1980s, a lot of men came into the sector and either pushed the women into lower paid roles or pushed them out of the workforce or created a culture like the media actually back in the 1980s, which was very unfriendly and unwelcoming and threatening Mm. to women. Mm. Yeah. And you you tell the story of how women were called computers as well. And and I think it's really interesting. I I can't quite remember the name name of the conference in the 1960s that happened, but it was a, a conference that was held in Europe around the period of time that you're referring to where the industry became more male dominated and they made this decision at the conference that they were no longer going to call it computing, but they were going to call it computer science. And a lot of people pin this to the point at which there was a real shift from women having a primary role in computing and then the shift with women uh, not being as prominent in the field. And actually, that's part of the motivation why ANU has just renamed our College of Computer Science to the College of Computing, Engineering and Cybernetics. Um, And so that's a really, I think, interesting full circle 
that that and the power again, not just of a conversation in this sense, but in the, of a word and the impact that that has. Yes, words matter. You can never underestimate the power of language. What you're pointing to is something very interesting that I write about at the start of the book, this whole idea of neurosexism, mm. the term coined by the wonderful Cordelia Fine, that you know, girls historically are brought up to, to be told they're not good at science, that yeah. that's a boy's realm. And they internalise that misogyny. I write about uh, my daughter, She goes to a mixed gender school and in the laboratory for a chemistry experiment, she came home one day, she's furious, dumped her school bag on the floor and said, oh, all the boys pushed all of us girls out of the way and we couldn't get to the lab equipment because there wasn't enough for everybody. Mm. And that was such a powerful metaphor for what happens in the workplace. So I think it's wise to remove that word science. I think it's a shame we have to. We definitely need more women and people in uh, marginalised communities in STEM, STEAM and all of those kind of science areas. But unfortunately, that neurosexism still lingers. Mm, Yeah. And being able to identify that it even exists. So, you know, one one example that um, is written about in the book called uh, Invisible Woman, which you refer to in in your book as well, um, was a a woman who had identified that um, breast pumps were really inefficient. There was this one basically one breast pump where it was the breast pump to end them all. And that was the only one, but it was actually really terrible to use. And she had invented a new breast pump that was much more efficient, much more effective. And she spent nearly 10 years trying to get venture capital up to be able to um, to produce um, the the breast pump, and part of that comes back to that um, the the bias that there is about this actually being something um, that people want. And for anyone who is a little bit uncomfortable with me talking about breast pumps, I would challenge you to think about that is actually exactly the type of unconscious bias um, that that Tracy is is talking about here. Oh, definitely, <laughs> and and I think about the whole broad area of smart homes Mm. and the technology that's created. The wonderful iRobot Roomba, which we have here in the house, not not, not a product plug. There's a reason (laughs) why I'm mentioning it. It was one of the first pieces of smart home technology that was co-created by a woman by Mm. the name of Helen, Helen Greiner, a roboticist. And that is a really valuable piece of home tech that takes the burden of housekeeping, which predominantly falls on women, away from us and just reduces it dramatically. Even though there are problems when it goes through, uh, one woman put online, it went through chalk and made some kind of, you know, outline of a dead body on my floor when she came (laughs) home. (laughs) But a lot of the other smart home technology, because it's created by, you know, men who traditionally have spent less time in the home than women, it's more gimmicky and just works in a fun way. Yes, you can use an app to turn on and off lights and things like that. Whereas I think if more women were involved in that home tech space, we'd have houses like the Jetsons, which would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating or, even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. This really only takes a few moments of your time, but it does help us to promote the podcast and get more people involved in these important conversations. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. 
so Tracy, we at the Tech Policy Design Centre, we focus really on policy. So what are the what are the things that we can do uh, working with government or with companies or as individuals to actually change this bias that we're, that you're talking about um, and talk about so eloquently through the book as well? What do you think are the policy levers that are available? And, and do you have reservations about the capacity of governments to actually be able to tackle this, um, I guess, the willingness of corporates to get involved. Um, where did you where did you land on that after looking at this for such a long period of time? For the sake of humanity, we must do something. Amen. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I expect that governments and businesses will be reticent. I mean, for example, even large organisations like the EU are reticent because they don't want to restrict the ability of artificial intelligence to change our lives for the better. There are tremendous things that can happen. But like every industrial revolution, even like the development of cars before seatbelts, the mm. technology forges ahead of the legislation and regulation, but at some stage it has to catch up because it puts people's lives at risk. And we are at that tipping point now. Mm. I am merely uh, a journalist who's done this book, but I interviewed a lot of experts. And one of them was the former Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo. Mm -hmm. He produced an incredible three-year report on all of this, bias and ethics, mm. calling for a lot of policy measures that made a whole lot of sense to me. For example, the concept of a regulatory sandpit, where if you've got an innovation, heck, why not test it out on a small group before unleashing it on the general public? I mean, it just makes sense. Mm. He also suggested that Australia have the world's first AI safety commissioner. And I think that's a wonderful idea because often big tech dumps their innovations on Australia because it's a smaller Western English-speaking nation for us to test it out. And so Australia could pay, play a really powerful world-leading role, making sure these innovations are safe before they go to the rest of the world. There are multifaceted solutions that could be put in place. I know the EU is about to come out with some guidelines for governments around the world. So if we just follow those global organisations and try to come up with some measures ourselves, a collaborative approach is what's required. Yeah. And I think actually uh, just overnight the EU um, has taken a step closer to uh, its AI Act, but now increasingly there's there's people questioning whether because of the developments um, since uh, that AI Act was first um, drafted, whether or not the AI Act will actually be fit for purpose, for example, around uh, large language models like ChatGPT, uh, just as an example. Um, the concepts of regulatory sandbox and and um, and AI, so regulatory sandboxes, I think, are, are a fabulous idea. Singapore is particularly good at it, at that field. I personally have a few reservations about the idea of an AI commissioner, not because we don't need to have a safety commissioner, but just um, the distinction between the role of, for example, the e-safety commissioner and and the, um, you know, having a, a e-safety commissioner that has a technology neutral approach, um, I think is probably the way that you can have a regulatory framework that keeps pace with the rate of change that we have. If we create a new commissioner for every different type of technologies, I think we will, the, the regulatory system will constantly be struggling to, to keep up. But I, I also think there's some really interesting work um, just to flag for people around third-party auditing mm. as well. You talk about that uh, or the concept of auditing in your book a little bit. Do you want to perhaps speak to that? Yes, and it's 
got a great analogy with what's been happening in the workplace around women's rights over the years. Mm. So auditing gender pay gaps is one of the levers to help people realise, mm-hmm. well, there is a gender pay gap in this workplace and you can see it here on paper. There's the proof and we should do something about it. Mm. So, for example, uh, in New York, the New York uh, state government has put into place this um Look, it's a fining system, but it's like a wet lettuce leaf, to be honest with you. I think it should be, <laughs> they should use a little bit a little bit of a stronger approach. But basically they're saying that you will be fined by New York State if you don't audit your algorithms for bias. And I think that's a really tremendous idea. There are a lot of third-party companies popping up around the world who do these mm-hmm. audits, and that's terrific. So, This is going to be a very long process. First, we have to get people to understand this auditing process. Secondly, we have to get businesses to accept it, whether that's through, I don't know, mandates or suggestions or regulations, who knows what. So that's the next step. And then thirdly, some of these auditing processes are problematic within themselves because some of them only audit for gender. They don't order for people of colour, people with disabilities, people of different sexuality, people over the age of 50. Mm. And we've, that's why I think we need to take a really intersectional approach to this from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think the concept of third-party auditing as well, there's a lot of history, you know, things like in the financial sector, um, the, the idea that self-audits, you can do your audits, but the audits have to be available for a third party to be able to verify. And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of pushback on the concept of audits, but I really do think this is, um, uh, we will see increasing regulatory requirements and also coming out of the standards process as well. There's a lot of, um, a lot of talk around, um, auditing. Um, I, I do just want to flag as well that a lot of the discussions around, what do we do about this focus on uh, on data and algorithms? And I think um, there is also um, some really interesting conversations starting now um, about how do we um, look at the potential for bias or to regulate the compute power. Um, so you, a lot of the artificial intelligence, for example, relies on you having access to large amounts of computing power. And so is this another regulatory and policy lever? And this is sort of a new area that I am starting to hear uh, increasingly coming to the forefront. Um, so we'll flag that for listeners that we'll, we'll uh, have some further conversations about that going forward. Tracy, when when we look at the future, do you think that we need to have a new social contract. Is that, I mean, in, in essence, what your book is asking is for people to wake up to the, both the bias that is being built into technologies, but also our ability to change that. Do you think as technology, the good parts of technology come and, and, and displace potentially workers um, from jobs, but also create new industries, for example, auditing, um, do you think it actually requires us to rethink the social contract that we have? We need to have an entirely new social contract because we're going to see enormous societal disruption and dislocation Mm. in the next coming decades because of the accelerating pace of artificial intelligence. Part of that social contract has to be that we have the power over the machines. They don't have the power over us. Often as humans, we forget that we are not beholden to our masters, to our uh, large corporations. We are fortunate in Australia to live in a democracy and we can educate ourselves, 
We can lobby our local members. We can talk to our communities, our families, our friends and colleagues about this issue because education is the first step towards creating change. Mm. Every single person knows someone whose job has been lost through an advance in technology. It is simply the way it goes throughout history. Yes, there will be jobs created, but we need to be doing this in a more ordered, smooth way rather than unleashing generative AI on the world without giving people any tools to be able mm. to manage it. Yeah. it. We are living through crazy times and we, we will look back and say, gosh, we live through the Wild West. That was extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also think one of the really interesting regulatory possibilities that is becoming um, more prominent as well is that we need to actually ensure that the companies, for example, the companies that are unleashing uh, ChatGPT, et cetera, that they have a liability for the harm that is caused by the products that they mm. are releasing. So that if there is harm that that does occur, um, that that the responsibility for that harm rests with the companies that are creating this technology, and I think that would be a real game changer in the way that they think about technology and the way that uh, the speed at which they take it uh, to market. If you have that type of uh, liability shift. You talk in the last part about your book about things that we can do, both at the government level, but also as individuals. Maybe let's touch on that because um, it's always nice to give people some actions to go away with. <laughs> Definitely. I've got about a hundred solutions at the end of the book. And when you pick it up and read it, there might be some things that work for you, but there might be other things that work for different people mm. because we're all individuals, of course. But a couple of the ones that are, I sh I've shared with my friends, actually, and I'm still struggling with this, but it's important that we all try to have a crack. One is to change your Siri or Alexa to a male voice or a gender neutral voice. That's yeah. actually quite an easy way of changing the stereotyping that we're absorbing every day. A more difficult one is to avoid Goliaths like Uber. We know that after Travis Kalanick started the company, it had a terrible culture. He called it Booba because he kept getting a lot of female interest. Oh my gosh. And whenever the executives would go away, they'd go to, you know, brothels and all of this kind of place. It just had a terrible culture. So instead of using Uber or Uber Eats, use something like Sheba, which is run by a woman. Now, I know that Uber is convenient and it's cheap, but the gig economy workers don't get paid very much. They're keeping people in poverty. Um, Sheba is great. It doesn't have as many cars. You have to pre-book it. But I do think we have to start thinking about um, what's that thing, our hip pocket power, mm. who we give our money to and who we support and who we should boycott as well because technology rules every aspect of our lives and we need to take back some kind of that power in the everyday. The other thing that we can do is simply to talk to our children and teenagers or nieces and nephews about this because people talk about them as digital natives and they are. They're very adept with technology and social media. But this is something deeper. This is the social sciences. Mm. This is humanity. And they need to understand that the images they're seeing are not a fair and equal representation of the world. Mm. And having those conversations um, and having, you know, having encouraging people to ask the question of is there bias in this? Um, what is the perspective that I'm seeing? I think is is one of the single most powerful things uh, that we can do because the more that people see this, the more that we will have people joining us to take action um, and to make change. So um, really in, endorse that, that last recommendation and, and all of them uh, as indeed. 
in your book, you, you call out a number of resources that you found to be particularly useful. The last question we always ask our guests is, where do you go to for information on this? Or what, what have you found to be really interesting and informative um, books or, or, you know, Twitter or wh- whatever it is. Twitter's kind of not, not so much of a thing these days, but um, what, 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 do you, what do you recommend our listeners uh, to, to read? The most powerful pieces of work I've seen are created by Dr. Joy Bullamweenie, who is from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. She came up with the concept of coded bias, and there's a yeah. documentary on Netflix of that very name. What she did was she created uh, an algorithm whereby if you held up a mirror to your face, it could reflect an image of someone you admire. And in her case, it was Serena Williams. She Mm. called it the Aspire Mirror. But when she tried to test it on herself, she realised that it didn't recognise her face. But if she put a white mask on, it recognised her face then. Mm. So she realised that the -the off-the-shelf set that she bought, the software set to be able to create her technology, didn't recognise black faces at all, which is appalling. Mm. So she's now dedicated her life to the Algorithmic Justice League, which she founded, Mm -hmm. and they're calling out one, they're calling out incredible stuff that's happening in the States. They're really ahead of the curve. If you're a reader, I highly recommend the book that you recommend before, recommended before, Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. She is a genius. I also recommend Smart Wives by Professor Yolanda Strengers, who I interviewed for the book. And she was the first one in Australia to call out this Siri and Alexa stuff. She's a, an incredible professor. And the other person I'd like to talk about is Toby Walsh. He's written a lot of books on artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. His latest one is called Machines Behaving Badly. (laughs) He also writes in a very engaging way and uh, as a white man admits his privilege and talks about how he was enticed by AI at the start to create this perfect world but realised the drawbacks very quickly and now speaks out against it. Yeah, and and obviously we have to add to the list of recommendations as well, uh, Tracy. Your book, Man Made, um, I do recommend it to people. It's a really fun book to read, but it's also very informative and educational. So, thank you so much, Tracy, for taking the the time to write the book and also to join us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. What a wonderful chat, and keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> thank you, Tracy. Right back at you. <laughs> Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. <laughs>